to get to the root cause of something, whether it's in my art, whether it's in a technical issue, even in architecture, it's like, okay, this isn't coming together. Why is that getting to the root cause of that? And turns out people are not that different. There's a root cause for something whenever you're dealing with some issues. It's usually not what's at the surface. The sur Stephanie went through the visualization program at Texas A&M. That's where students spend the first two years learning the core curriculum of the other environmental design students, but then they branch off for the other two years doing mostly 3D animation. Because this program is so highly regarded, those folks are handpicked by companies like DreamWorks or Pixar to work in Silicon Valley after graduating. Stephanie is a talented animator, interior designer, and now a people manager at Apple. Let's hear her story. All right, friends, 10 Colleagues, 10 Years is a podcast series where I interviewed 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. glass of water i have never used google hangouts video chat before oh really <laughs> I was like what is this <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to just recap for the interview spending about 25 percent of it on your time at texas a&m mm -hmm. and so i have some questions there and reflecting on that time and what you thought about the skills you learned and the studio culture and then the other bulk of the interview on your journey since then over the last okay. 10 years the first question I wanted to ask is, what was your fairy word? Oh, my fairy word. Vivacious. Oh. That's my fairy word, which now that I am an actual adult and know myself a lot better, I would not have picked that word. Okay, that was going to be my next question, if, if that <laughs> yeah. describes you today or how, what you felt about that word. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because when you go to college, I don't know if this is true for a lot of people, but when you start out in college, you're just starting out your kind of self-discovery journey yeah. and you don't really have a good idea of who you are because now you're in a new environment you've got new people around you your parents aren't around to tell you what to do or who you are anymore your brain is like a soup of what your identity might be and so I think when I picked the word vivacious I was thinking oh yeah I'm gonna be this lively like adventurous person it's gonna uh -huh. be great and awesome and and now that I am several years away from that and I've learned a lot more about myself, not that I'm completely boring and the opposite of that, <laughs> but I don't think that's like the singular word I would choose to describe myself anymore. Yeah. Oh, I totally yeah. get that. Did you feel like it was a good word to visualize or to visually? No, it's a horrible choice. <laughs> it was a terrible decision. Trying to visualize the word vivacious in cardboard form and in black and white form is very difficult. And I think that's probably why I didn't do so well in that class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was actually close to my word. My word was vibrant. Um, Would you have picked that this time around? 
Yeah, I had a good relationship with it then in terms of a good way to express the word and it wasn't a popular word. So John Ferry didn't have stipulations about what it should look like aesthetically. So I had a little bit of free reign there, but I would say I would still pick that word. Good, good. (laughs) I think that helps a lot. If you feel like you have a good grounding with that word, a good relationship, like you said, with that word, I think that just makes the creative parts of it and the visualization so much easier. Totally. Starting with the right word is very important. I want to describe for the audience what our degree was like. Because it's such a different degree, I'm trying to give people a sense for time there. If you could summarize it. Yeah, mine's going to be a little strange because A&M's architecture program had a split in the junior year where you could actually go through the environmental design program, but then junior year, you can choose to go into the visualization sciences path, which is more about 3D animation, 3D graphics. And so I did that in my junior year. So I didn't fully complete the architecture, the environmental design portion. So my summary is going to be a little weird, but if I were to describe the environmental design portion, our program was called environmental design and not architecture specifically. Architecture was the school that housed landscape, healthcare, environmental design as well. It was kind of interesting because some people are like, oh, what's environmental design? I'm like, well, that's a good question, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I have a good answer for that. The way I kind of thought of it back then was not just architecture in the sense of buildings or the more technical aspects of construction. It was really thinking about how you or how your client is going to function in a space, Mm -hmm. right? So how they're going to move around. What are the things about the space that are custom to them or specific to them? What aspects of the design fit their needs? And not just their physical needs, but also Mm -hmm. their mental well-being. I remember we had a project in Rodney Hill's class. It was a made-up client, but it was a handicapped client, right? Mm -hmm. So they were in a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. and we had to consider not just the ADA requirements uh, involved, but also what is their day-to-day like? How do we create an environment for them? Almost like they don't always have to be reminded that they're in a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of a long-winded way of saying, I think our program was a little bit more holistic than just the building and the construction. Yeah. Then can you go into the time that you spent in visualization? Because you're actually the only interviewee I have that took that path. And so I wanted to specifically reach out to you for that reason, just to get a sense for that degree and those skills that were taught. So visualization was strangely shoehorned into the architecture program. I think because Anm is such a engineering-focused school, mm-hmm. architecture was one of the very few more artistically focused programs at the school. So therefore, visualization sciences was quote-unquote natural fit just because it was also more visuals and art focused. It has since become its own program, but back then that's why it was part of the architecture program. So I ended up going that route, I guess, for a couple reasons. One, I decided working with clients sucked. (laughs) I really didn't want to do it. That's not always true. I've learned since then. And two, it really appealed to, again, my interest in both kind of the technical and the artistic, right? Mm -hmm. Which is one of the reasons I went into architecture in the first place. It's also kind of a combination of those two things. But in 3D visualization, I felt like I could expand that much further. So 
I could really explore the artistic side and it was an extremely technical field as well. Mm -hmm. You're working with programs that require a great deal of technical know-how to even just operate before you even get to the artistic part. It was very interesting and challenging to me. And of course, the connections that the visualization program had at A&M were unprecedented. I mean, they had inroads to Pixar, they had inroads to DreamWorks, tons of people went to ILM, so Disney was another one. It was almost like known that if you went through this program, you had a really good chance of getting a job at one of those really renowned companies. Yeah, and I like how you said it was shoehorned in to the architectural program, and especially back then, you know, now it's become this much bigger deal and more structured. But back then there was a lot of freedom and flexibility and like finding your path in that curriculum. There wasn't a lot of attention on it for it being such a renowned program for getting a job at somewhere like Pixar or DreamWorks. Yeah, it's so true. It was really, I don't want to call it diamond in the rough because the rough isn't really a good metaphor for that. But it was sort of this almost like a special ops program or a secret ops program where people were like, oh, what are those guys doing in the computer lab? At the time, the computer lab was this fishbowl thing in the middle of the building where you walk by and they're creating all these like crazy characters and things. And it was kind of like this mysterious program that happened within the building, but everyone didn't really know what it was, but the companies themselves had really honed in on it, I guess, because a lot of the alums would come back and they're like, these kids, these are the ones you want. Yeah, it was kind of a weird contrast. Such a great opportunity. Well, and then did you know going into school that that was the path that you wanted to take at A&M, or did you find that after you started the program? One of the reasons I chose A&M was because they had both paths. I was torn between the two. So then coming into school, what was your vision for yourself after you had completed the degree? Did you think you were going to do architecture and be an architect, or did you have this other idea in mind? Well, I started out in architecture because I was interested in it. I think what made me lean away was when I had heard that you needed to spend essentially 10 years before getting up to designer level or senior design or senior architect level, I was like extremely ambitious back then. And not that I'm not now, but I was like 10 years. I don't want to spend 10 years moving toilets around on AutoCAD and like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I don't know if I'm gonna be willing to do that so that plus 3d graphics being so exciting and new both of those tipped me over to the computer graphics field and then during your time at AM, did you have any inspirational people that pushed you in one direction or helped you in a certain way or got you inspired yeah definitely it's funny i actually wrote down a lot of the answers when i was brainstorming through mm-hmm. this The professors that come to mind immediately are Rodney Hill, of course. I feel like he's everyone's inspiration. I mean, the guy was very creative. Projects were very thoughtful and interesting. Everyone talks about his Apple meditation session. I don't know if you remember that (laughs) one, but he did a whole class where he gave everyone an Apple, and he had us just lean back and close our eyes and described in great detail this Apple (laughs) the feel of it, the smell of it, the look, everything. And then finally at the end, he lets you take a bite. And it's like the most delicious (laughs) apple you've ever had ever. I remember that now that you tell that story, but I would have never pulled that out. Yeah, I, I just think he had such a great presence, both like his own presence and also 
pulling people into being present with their project or being present with their own thoughts. And I think the Apple meditation is a really good example of that. Richard Davison was another one. I mean, the guy was definitely kind of harsh with criticism. I think he was artistically just on another level. His drawings, his art was absolutely amazing. He wasn't afraid to tell you when you needed to improve. And I think that's one of the things that is missing in a lot of schooling. You kind of float through and you're just, oh yeah, I guess it's okay. You know, you don't really get critical feedback and then you get kicked out into the real world and it's a rough time. People like Richard Davison, people like John Ferry, who are very forthcoming and honest with their feedback, really prepared us for life. So I would say those are definitely professors that I think back on fondly. Even though I didn't do very well in John Ferry's class, <laughs> I found him to be very inspirational. Maybe that was the worst class for a new freshman, first ever architecture class <laughs> to be taking. But I mean, he really, he prepped you for architecture in the long haul. You weren't cut out for that class you're probably not going to be cut out to be an architect. He told you some very harsh truths in that class, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I would say my classmates, honestly, some of my peers were just really high functioning, creative people, and they drove me to do better. I came from also a very high functioning high school. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to A&M, I bonded with them because we all had very similar drives, similar passions. I would see the stuff they would create and I'd be just like, that is really good. Very inspirational. Yeah, I loved the studio culture because of that, the high functioning peers and that you were all competitive, but also everyone respected each other. I felt like it was a really good balance of being like, oh, I want to do better than this person, but also they're one of my best friends and I love them and their work's so good. And <laughs> I like, think you like totally hit the nail on the head. I mean, there was some fierce competition going on, but at the end of the day, we would all still grab beers together and it was really great camaraderie. Yeah. Can you briefly describe what you do now? So now I'm actually a manager, an operations manager. So I went into the computer graphics field for probably the last seven-ish years. When I got into Apple, I was still doing the same thing. And then I transitioned to management, where I started becoming basically a people manager in a data operation aspect. How would you say what you learned at A&M helps you with this career? Architecture school has helped me in more ways than you can imagine, and not in the ways you might expect. One of the things that I learned in architecture school was to act purposefully. And what I mean by that is when I do something or when I create something, it's always with a purpose and I'm always able to justify it because every day in architecture school, you would create a model or create a mock-up and then John Ferry or somebody would come by and ask why, why did you do it this way? Right. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't have a good explanation, out it went. That didn't get to stay in your model. And so I think about that why question when I operate day to day as I think about, okay, I'm putting the slide in the presentation. Mm -hmm. Why is it in there? Right? Why do they want to know this? Or if I'm asking someone to do something, or if I'm asking one of my direct reports to complete a project, I really need to give them that purpose and that why. Otherwise, what's the point? So that was kind of a big one. Yeah. And then feedback was the other one. So again, going back to getting feedback and everything, I think architecture school really rounded me out in terms of, of getting feedback because you're getting it constantly. I mean, like daily, 
and there's not a lot of fields where you get that opportunity and being constantly bombarded with that feedback toughens you up and it also teaches you how to take it gracefully taking feedback gracefully is a skill that you need to learn (laughs) in order to improve yeah it's easy to get defensive it's easy to get attached to your work but learning to put all of that kind of initial reaction behind you and look at the actual feedback for what it is, which is an opportunity for growth is a real skill to learn. And I think that architecture helped me do that quite a bit. Separate yourself from the work. So it's not personal. It's just about the work. Um, It's usually about improvement. And if you're going to get all uppity about improving, then you're not going to improve. Totally. And then what was your path to get to where you are now? Maybe we should go back and talk about after you graduated from A&M, what was your thought about your career and then what did you end up doing? And one thing probably led to the next. Yeah, I had actually quite a few jobs between between then and now. You know, I won't go into great detail about every single one. I guess I'll talk a little bit about how I ended up jumping around. So I started out, I went to grad school at A&M as well in the visualization sciences program. And straight out of that, I actually jumped into Pixar for two years. It's a great company. There's some very talented people there. But while I was there, I was kind of thinking, eventually I would like to try a leadership position. I don't know if I'm there yet, but eventually I would like to get there. And I remember talking to my mentor, and he told me he had been at the company for seven years, and he still hadn't gotten a lead position. And I was just thinking in the back of my mind, I want to wait more than seven years to get a position. Pixar is a pretty risk averse company. They don't like to promote people when the project is on the line. They don't like to promote people who have never done the job before. There's too much at stake, Mm -hmm. right? To take risks on promoting inexperienced people, even if they could totally hit it out of the park, it's an unknown. I didn't feel like I wanted that. That kind of was a theme that continued as I went to DreamWorks. I actually went through layoffs at DreamWorks six months after I got there. They had a huge thing of layoffs that I was caught up in. That probably ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me. Reason being is that I eventually went to EA after that. And through the people that I met at DreamWorks, I got the job at Apple. So they connected me with the hiring managers at Apple. And that's where I got the job. But in all of those jobs leading up to Apple, I kept thinking, I would love to try this leadership thing. I just need someone to give me a chance. Mm -hmm. And so I was honing my skills both in pre-rendered and real-time computer graphics leading up to Apple. And then when I got to Apple, I was here for about a year when one of the senior directors identified me as a potential lead. Mm -hmm. And then she put me in a management position. And mentored me. I think that was the key part is she wasn't just pushing me into the deep end being like, swim, see you later. Yeah. She was like, I'm going to give you this opportunity. We can try it for six months. If you like it, great. We'll keep going. If not, no pressure. You can go back to being an individual contributor. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's go for it. For me, it was like no hesitation. I was like, yes. Yeah, I loved it. It's a whole different job. A lot of people think that when you go into a management position, You're just becoming more expert at the thing you already do. And I think that's a misconception. It is a completely different job that you're pretty much never prepared for. So (laughs) (laughs) suddenly you're not the subject matter expert. You possibly are the subject matter expert, but you're having to apply different skills. Managing people 
I mean, it's like herding cats and you're dealing with emotions and you're dealing with like drama. Um, suddenly HR is like your best friend. You're sitting in like PowerPoint presentations constantly because you're having to report to other people what your team is working on. You're in meetings all day long, right? yeah. <laughs> like making decisions. It's a completely different job function than being boots on the ground. And that's something that some people love and some people hate. I turned out to be one of the people that really loves it. Where do you see yourself going from here? Ooh, that's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, actually. Mm-hmm. What's my career path? And there's a few options that I'm considering. One is continuing mm-hmm. on the Apple path, right? Apple has tons of teams doing tons of things. There's a great many opportunities here and a great many different fields to explore, many of which I'm interested in. I really believe in Apple's culture and their vision. It's one of the few companies that I actually feel good about working for. The possibility of exploring more within Apple. The other possibility is potentially becoming my own boss. The issue with working for a corporation is you don't have a lot of flexibility. I would love to travel more. I would love to stay at home and drink coffee one morning and not feel bad about it <laughs> right? or not have to not have like, you know, five meetings I'm missing, take a long morning and walk my dog, those kind of things. And right now I'm in the process of trying to figure out what career paths will allow me to do that. One of the things I'm actually exploring right now is career coaching. This is something that Apple introduced me to. They actually partnered me with a couple of career coaches when I moved into management to help me learn about the job and to really kind of hone my skills and also discover my identity as a leader, which absolutely an invaluable experience. I recommend career coaching to everybody. And especially if you're jumping into leadership, because it is very difficult. Those experiences were really profound for me because I learned so much about myself. It's almost like therapy, like going to therapy, but with career goals. I just loved the conversations that we had about self-discovery. And I find myself using a lot of those techniques with my own direct reports. So my direct reports, they have ambitions for their own careers. They have difficulties that they have to deal with day to day. They sometimes have drama with other people. I get a lot of joy helping them with those and asking them questions to help them discover what the right path is. This is something I'm kind of learning about myself. It's something that I really enjoy doing. And I know that career coaching is actually a viable career path that would allow me to do this more. There's a huge difference in going the Pixar route and doing visualization and animation. You're on a computer. I mean, that's one of my memories of you is like being in the computer lab, working away so hard and doing so well. But there's just a lot of hours spent Mm -hmm. developing that versus now it sounds like you're around people all day and you're managing people. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like a pretty big change. Have you always been a people person and that was just something that you had considered or is this something that's developed along the way and kind of shown itself to you? How did that come about? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. Yeah, the most intense program I use these days is email (laughs) on the Mac. It's kind of silly because I used to work in these crazy programs like Maya. So I think the thread that I can tie this all back to is I've always been very analytical when it comes to diagnosing things. So I've always been really good at giving people critiques or criticism and honing in on the core thing that's wrong. 
which is terrible for, let's say, relationships and friendships. If you're always like <laughs> criticizing people. You're like, if you just fix this one thing, it'll all be great. But I've always had that ability to get to the root cause of something, whether it's in my art, whether it's in a technical issue, even in architecture, it's like, okay, this isn't coming together. Why is that getting to the root cause of that? And turns out people are not that different. There's a root cause for something whenever you're dealing with some issues. It's usually not what's at the surface. The surface things, all the dialogue, all the offensive things you might say to somebody, those are all symptoms of a root cause. The more I get to know people and the more I'm able to ask questions around that situation, the more I can get to that root cause and identify what it is. And I think that's why that skill has translated so well across all of my disciplines is because mm -hmm. identifying that root cause is something that is helpful in many different fields. I've gotten a lot better at actually communicating that to people now. I'm not just like super critical all the time. I've become a lot less judgmental in my language and a lot more exploratory with my questions to kind of allow them to get there themselves. But yeah, that's something that has helped me to help people. It's helping them get to their own root cause. Yeah. It sounds like from the analytical side, like what I've learned about management being in an architecture firm, it's not something most people know they want to do or know what that looks like. I managed at a coffee shop when I was at A&M and I didn't know a thing about management. I probably still don't know a lot, but what I've learned is that it's organizational. You've got to report to higher ups and you have to report on what you've done and what your team's working on. And at least in an architecture firm, it's a lot of Excel spreadsheets and fees and figuring out everyone's workloads and trying to shuffle things around. And so for our analytical mind, I see that being very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a couple, there's a few different aspects of management too. What you described, like the Excel, the presentations, the organizing people, that's a lot of like project management. And then with that, there's the people management, the fuzzier side, the less defined side of management, which is like, again, the emotions and the different cultures and the different identities. So it's two different things. A lot of people can go to school and read tons of books and then go to get certified on project management skills. You can even go to school for business, business management, people management. I don't know if there's a really comprehensive course on that. It's one of those things you have to just do it because everyone's different. You're different. When you combine you and another person or that person and another person, the combination results in something you've never seen before. You just have to do it and learn from your experience. Mm -hmm. That's what I found with people management. It's almost impossible to prepare yourself. You can read books, which I've done. I actually read mm -hmm. tons of management books before I went into management. And I'm having to reread all of them now because I'm <laughs> like, wow, I learned nothing from those books. <laughs> I learned everything from doing, and now I have to go back and reread all of it and yeah. see if it applies. People management isn't something that's talked about a lot until I think recently. And I could see in the future there being curriculum around that or trying to Put it into something people can digest. Apple provided you with some coaching in order to do that. I see that infiltrating the business world more, whereas before I don't think it was as valued. You know, it was more the analytical side of management, and now we're embracing everybody's different, and there's different personalities working together. Definitely, I would love to see people management take up more time in all aspects of education. Honestly, yeah. I feel like the only time we really learn how to deal with our peers is when we're smushed together in school and forced to socialize, but yeah. we don't have formal classes on it. Honestly, with the whole 
women's rights movements and Me Too and everything like that, and hopefully more women getting into leadership and getting into these technical fields, I actually find that that breeds more of a focus on people because I find that women are naturally very social creatures and are also, in my experience, a lot more empathetic. And so with that empathy comes the consideration for others, right? You know, being nicer to people, dealing more diplomatically with difficult situations. And so I find the more women that enter the workplace, the more you're going to see that focus on people skills and people management bubbling to the top. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. So one of the pinnacles of architecture school, I'm going to go back a little bit, is the all-nighter. How many all-nighters would you say that you pulled? you say how many? Yes. If you had to put a number to it. I probably couldn't give you like a solid number. I mean, it's not like, I wouldn't say it's months worth of all-nighters. There's (laughs) definitely chunks where I would stay up late or stay up all night. But I actually usually got some sleep in between most of my days. But I do remember it was the Rodney Hill Project. We were working on the house for the handicapped person. And that was a whole week where I had a whole new routine. It was get up at 6 a.m., shower go to the studio, work until 3 a.m., so basically a full, what is that, 21 hours? Um, (laughs) Go home, sleep for three hours, and repeat. So, like, I did that for a full week, and it kept me functioning. So it wasn't an all-nighter, but it was definitely a week of weird schedule. That's how I got that project done. But it's funny that my thing when I pulled an all-nighter, and I've continued this into my work life, is that whenever I pulled an all-nighter, I would always make sure to go back to my apartment or wherever I was, my dorm, wherever I was staying at the time, freshen up, put a fresh face of makeup on, do my hair, wear something (laughs) presentable. Uh And I would come in looking like I had just slept for 12 hours. (laughs) That was your tactic. That was my thing is I was like, no matter how tired I am after an all-nighter, I'm coming in, I'm looking like a boss. (laughs) And I do that to this day. I mean, I don't pull... All-nighters are super rare for me these days, but, like, I remember I pulled one probably, was it, maybe, like, six months ago, and, yeah, I I showered, (laughs) I got all freshened up, went to work, told everyone I had gotten no sleep, and they were like, wow, you look great. Yeah, that's right, because I made an effort. (laughs) That's my thing for all-nighters, and that makes me actually feel a little better when I do pull one. It makes me not feel like I'm completely dysfunctional the next day. Well, yeah. I think it's a lot about how you feel is like projected uh-huh. in uh-huh. how your day goes sometimes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, I, if I'm all gross and oily and, you know, hair is a mess and I've got like grease <laughs> stains on me or whatever, like yeah. I'm not going to feel good the next day, but if I can at least put myself together, yeah. part of me will forget that I got no sleep. So Sounds like you're a dress for success kind of gal. <laughs> oh yeah, for, <laughs> I sure, like that. for sure. Another question I had was about mentorship. You've already talked a little bit about your time at Apple with mentors and your time at A&M with a few key people. Have there been any others along the way that have helped you with your journey, directing you to this? Or that you've looked at maybe in reading some things or finding inspiration in some ways that helped you decide what you were going to do? Yeah, I would say I've met some very great mentors at Apple. Before that, though, I would have to say my mom is 
and this is going to sound very cliche, but my mom is like a huge inspiration for me. So my mom actually immigrated from Hong Kong back in her early 20s, and she had zero money. Her family grew up very poor, and she put herself through college. She became a computer programmer back in the days where they were doing punch cards. She was a woman computer programmer back that long ago. Yeah, (laughs) and you know, I actually asked her several months ago, I was like, when you went into programming, were you aware that not many women went into programming? She was like, no, back then it was so new that it was like, whatever. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing. It is um, amazing. And so, yeah, she, she got her degree. She went in to become a computer programmer and my parents moved to New Mexico. She got a job at Sandia National Laboratories where she's now a senior manager. She's been there for 25 years now and she's about to retire And it's funny because only now that I've become a manager, I'm starting to have all these new conversations with her because I've always thought of my mom as my mom. That was kind of like her identity to me. And then now I'm seeing her in a whole new light where she's manager, right? Not just mom. And so am I. And so we're swapping all these stories of, oh yeah, when this person comes in late, what do you do? Yeah. Like we're sharing management stories with each other. Our relationship is almost on a different level now. I'm seeing this new identity of hers. And so seeing her come from extreme poverty and becoming this incredibly successful woman who's like very confident in what she does. She's very good at what she does. She's postponed her retirement for years because they don't want her to leave. It's kind of amazing. And just seeing how confident and calm she is at doing her job and almost how effortless it seems for her. She's like a huge inspiration. That's a really great role model to have. Now it's cool to see that you're able to relate to her on this new level with your career too. I know. I feel like I did not appreciate any of that growing up. <laughs> now <laughs> yeah. I, I feel kind of bad about that, but now I'm glad I got to see that, that side of her and really relate to it at this point in my life. I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky that I can do that with my mom. It's awesome. Well, cool. I think you've answered all the questions I had, unless there's anything else that you want to add that we didn't cover. Something I always think about when I think about our going through architecture school and now with Facebook being able to see what everyone's doing and where they're going and where life is taking them. It's really interesting to see that I don't know what percentage, but maybe like half of the people have gone into something kind of architecture or design related, but then the other half have completely diverged. And I think that's great, actually. One thing that's really scary about going to college and almost immediately having to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life, it's, I don't know if I can curse on this thing, but it's like such bullshit, right? (laughs) The world doesn't work like that anymore. It's very rare that you pick a field and then you stay in that field for the rest of your life, get a pension and you retire. That just doesn't happen with our generation anymore. The university system hasn't caught up to that yet. They still want you to pick something and stick with it for your four years or six years or whatever, how long you're there. And that's really scary. How many of us know what we want to do at 18 for the rest of our lives? Come on. So I think for me, it's really inspirational to see all these people who pick something, in this case, architecture, maybe computer graphics, and then made it their own. Either they went further into it, they went to a specific field like healthcare, They went into interior design. They went into graphic design. They just went where they wanted to go and took the learnings from architecture, which I think is actually a great foundational program wherever you want to go because of aforementioned feedback and criticism learnings. 
seeing them take all of those learnings with them and apply it to their new field mm -hmm. is really inspirational and freeing. It makes me feel like I could jump off and do anything. So that would be my last uh, piece of advice or, or whatever to people who are scared or lost or whatever. Get a degree in architecture and then go do whatever you want, <laughs> basically. That's yeah. exactly what this podcast is about. It's inspiration for people that maybe they're 18 and they don't know what they want to go to school for or they're in high school. They don't know where they're going to go to college or what they're going to do or maybe they're out of college and they don't know what's out there. It's meant to be inspirational and also to showcase what a unique degree environmental design was because of all the things you're talking about. I think you said it perfectly. There's so much breadth to the degree and the skill sets learned that you can take those skills and apply them in so many different ways. And the way I curated the interviewees was people that diverged. I wanted to have some architects in there, but it's mostly people that chose to do something different. So like Chris Nagelhout doing aquaponics, Aaron Peavy, who does healthcare, um, Bob Turek, who does ceramics and woodworking. It gives you a lot of ownership over your future. I really appreciate that. And it was something that was totally unexpected. Going into a and I didn't feel like coming out of it, I would also have that sense of authority over my life. I don't even know if that's explicitly taught there. It's just this culture of you can go out and do that thing. Why not? And I'm going to give you the confidence to do it. I still find today that I, I respect everybody we went to school with and they give me inspiration. So this podcast was a way to give that back to a, a new audience. I so. love that theme. I love that you're doing that. Yeah. I think that's really important. I feel like we need a reunion or something. I we do already too. do one of those. We should. That snuck up on me. Jeez. Seriously. Okay. Everybody's been like, man, you put me on the spot 10 years ago. I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's been really fun to hear everybody. Very cool. Well, I'm very impressed that you're kicking off your own company. You've got this amazing website with beautiful projects. So congratulations on that. Thank you. How are you feeling about all of it? I'm feeling good. Actually, it's a great time. I wanted to go out when the economy was really good. And so I've been thinking about it for a few years because, you know, this doesn't last forever. I just wanted to get that bulk of projects under my belt before something happens and then hopefully be able to ride whatever comes. But it's been really good. I've been here five years now in Seattle. So it's a good time to like be networked and have a community of people and contractors and consultants. It took me a while to finally feel like, okay, I've got this network going. I resonate with what you said about wanting to get up and have coffee in the morning and not feel bad about it. I did the corporate thing for 10 years. I was just ready for some more flexibility. It's more just living a lifestyle and being able to, you know, like I write down ideas I have all the time. This was a book and now podcast and I have book ideas. There's just these other projects I want to explore that I want to be given time and space for. I didn't feel like I would get that at a traditional firm totally. ever. Can I ask you as someone who is currently a little fearful of that jumping off the corporate cliff, I yeah. guess, into... Yeah financial uncertainty yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was it that was the catalyst for your decision or how did you decide now is the time had you been planning up to that point or was it sort of spontaneous it was two years so for the first year of that two years I went home and I would spend nights coming up with a business plan and deciding how I wanted to present myself and building a website and thinking of a name you know what's my studio called or 
for me, it was like important to do a visionary plan and who are my ideal clients and how would I reach out to them and reading management books, reading books about architecture, just reading, reading, reading and going home and thinking about stuff. Google Docs was my best friend. Don't tell Apple that. Google Docs. <laughs> uh, so it was a year of that and then a year of telling everybody I knew I'm going to do this thing. I got a couple clients come home and work after work, working on floor plans and sketching stuff and doing that for another year and then deciding how little can I make. Ah, I see. What's the minimum you're comfortable living with? Exactly. So it was like getting to a number because for me, I was like, when am I going to do this thing? I'm already taking work on the side, but when am I actually going to leap? And when I found out, okay, this is how little I need to make. Wow. Okay. So you went into this like very prepared both like mentally and organizationally, right? You had a plan, you had it all laid out in documents, you're like mentally prepared for it. Um, I know that if I decide to take the leap, it'll be fine. But like, I'm just wrought with anxiety about it because I'm like, what if it isn't fine? And it, it sounds like, you know, as long as you're driven and you're really passionate about it, most of the time, it, it'll probably work out. Or you'll find a way to work it out. Well, it's funny because I have this extreme calm about the money thing. I didn't think I would be this type of person, but money will come, you know? And I totally believe that. And I didn't think of myself as that type of person. Maybe it's a way to help calm the anxiety, but I've definitely been remarkably like, it's fine. Things will come. No, I think that's a great mentality to have. For me, a lot of my anxiety comes from just living in the Bay Area. Money will come, but then it'll go immediately to rent. (laughs) I really, truly believe that if you're passionate and hardworking, money will come. Do you plan to stay in the Bay Area? If I'm not getting a piece of the Silicon Valley pie, I don't see the point of being here. Not that I haven't met some amazing people. I have great friends now, and the weather is great. But it is a rat race. If you're not getting that thing that special you know je ne sais quoi that makes silicon valley silicon valley which is basically the money and being around amazing people if you're not getting those things it's too much stress yeah i can see that well i still feel comfortable with those things i'll remain here but until then or after then you know i'll have to look elsewhere seattle sounds nice (laughs) seattle is nice but i resonate with the rat race especially coming from austin and denver where everybody's like "Eh, it's all lifestyle (laughs) you know and then you come out here and it's like I want that now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can imagine. People say because of Vancouver and San Francisco, everybody looks at Seattle as like the cheaper option. Right. A lot of companies are opening up offices in Seattle. Hopefully it doesn't go the way of San Francisco. It's just a little too much here, I think. And I think that would spoil what makes Seattle charming. It's crazy. And also one of my other ambitions is I would love to do real estate development at some point because I actually did a jump off after DreamWorks. I was having trouble finding my next job. I did a nine month stint at an interior design firm in San Francisco. So we did high end residential homes. So I was working on all these crazy mansions. There's 10,000 square foot mansion I was working on in San Francisco and I loved it. I did that because I've always had this itch and this may have been my alternate life if I had stuck with architecture and I may have gone into interior design, but that didn't happen. But I can definitely see myself doing that because I just love it. I love doing it in my own home, which is where I do it now. I love having friends and I don't think I would go back to working for an interior design company because it's pretty high stress and low pay. 
again, it goes back to the whole wanting to be my own boss thing. Ultimately, I'd want to be making the design decisions. So real estate development, potentially something I might explore in the future, but not in the Bay Area. So I could totally see that. I have like little, little tinge of regret that I didn't go that route Mm -hmm. just because it is so interesting to me, but there's always time. There's certainly plenty of time. And even when you're 40 or you're 50, there's still time. As long as you're breathing, you can do something you're passionate about. Well, it sounds like coaching would be really interesting. I mean, I truly think that's an uncharted field in a way. It's happening at companies like Apple, but that's the forefront. It's not like a commonplace practice. Not something that is necessarily accessible to a lot of the masses. Career coaches, especially the really senior ones, are incredibly expensive. That's one of the reasons the larger corporations can afford to hire them. And you also see them coaching people at levels like manager and above because, again, school doesn't prepare you for this job. It doesn't prepare you to be a manager or to be a director or even an executive. Really, the best way to get better at those levels is personal coaching. But that being said, career coaching is something that should be available at all levels. Kids who are in college, kids who are just graduating from college could greatly benefit from a little bit of guidance. People will hire a personal trainer when they want to get fit. If you've never exercised a day in your life, it would benefit you to hire someone who can teach you how to exercise properly and not injure yourself. The same is true for career coaching. Nobody teaches you how to direct your life or how to exercise your skills in the right way. And a career coach can help you do that. I really hope that it becomes more commonplace and happens at an earlier age. You know, I've been a little disappointed about mentorship in the workplace. And I don't know if this is just the architecture profession. That's all I know. I was fortunate enough to have mentors early on in my career in Texas. And then since then, I haven't had that. I just thought it was it was commonplace my first couple years out of school because I had such great mentorship. And then going into firms later, I was at my sixth firm before I started the studio that I have now. But I just didn't find that same level of investment in employees. So it wasn't an institution culturally, like the mechanisms weren't in place to have a mentee-mentor relationship, but it also was like, you can't ask for a mentor. I tried doing that for so long, and if there aren't people that are just wanting to do that, and it's not ingrained in the culture, then it's not happening. What you're talking about with the coaching and the counseling and the guidance that is almost like the new mentoring because we need to have guidance in our careers, but it's not coming from a traditional mentor-mentee relationship. At least for me, it wasn't. And I would have loved to have some sort of guidance out there. It's really great to hear that you had some mentors early on Mm -hmm. because you're right. Mentors are sporadic and rare, I find. And it requires like almost the perfect combination of ingredients of you need mentorship. They want to provide mentorship. They have time to provide mentorship, and they know how to mentor. Not everyone who wants to be a mentor knows how to do it. That perfect combination of things is kind of rare to come across. So it's really fortunate that you had that early on. Combined with, obviously, your hard work and skills probably gave you a leg up with where you are. So Well, I still think about them because I haven't had that great of mentorship since. I still think about those people wanting to repay them for doing that, yeah. like give back. Cause it's true. Like you get so much out of that. You just want to spread that energy back out. Totally. I actually just 
called my mentor yesterday, the woman who put me in this management position. She's no longer with Apple. I reached out to her because I, I was you know, wanting to discuss some stuff that was on my mind. The way I think about mentorship is I'm so incredibly grateful to her. I can't even properly express it. And I understand you want to pay it back so bad because you're like, <laughs> I owe my life and success to you, right? And I don't know if that'll ever happen, but the way I can resolve it in my head is paying it forward. Now I've reached a point in my career where I can start mentoring mm -hmm. other people, especially other women in technology, because this is something that's really needed. The way I pay my mentor back or show my appreciation for what she did for me was by doing it for someone else. You, I'm sure, would be a fantastic mentor if you're not already to some other aspiring architects out there. Well, hopefully. I did show an eight-year-old on Monday at a client meeting. We want to show what an architect does. So I did tell an eight-year-old what an architect is. I mean, that person may grow up and become an architect. And <laughs> remember that exact moment. I remember when I wanted to become an architect. It can start at any age. Well, yeah. thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate that you reached out to me. I'm very flattered and yeah. I think it's a really great thing you're doing. I'm yeah. really looking forward to hearing the other interviews and hearing Rodney Hill's voice again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great idea. And I love that you're doing it. Oh, thanks. Well, I really respect you and that's why I wanted to have you uh, as an episode. So, uh, thank you. Yeah. Likewise, I think your whole endeavor in entrepreneurship is very inspirational. Thank you. So, cool. Right. Stay in touch. All right, we'll do. All right. Thanks. Bye, Stephanie. Hi, Heather. Man, Stephanie's interview gets me jazzed because of how inspiring her story is and where she's gone over the last 10 years. I enjoy the thoughtful approach she takes to her career. And as of this interview being published, she has accepted a new position at NIO USA as Senior Manager for Simulation on developing smarter electric cars for the future. Stephanie's interview was the last on the podcast series. I hope you enjoyed hearing these 10 stories of navigating a career path. A sincere thank you to everyone that's been supportive and listened. If you like what you hear, rate it with five stars on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again. I'm Heather Pogue with Shunas Architects, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years.